saying that uh, what certainly heard about not being able to see the forest from the trees. I'm going to turn that around for you. Because the reality when it comes to studying the Bible is you can't see the forest until you see the trees. And you've got to look at the little minute nuances of the words, the grammar, put it all together to come up with the forest. That's what systematic theology does. Where of that term. That is all good and it's a good introduction and a good follow-up to what we've been doing. But that being said, you've got to get the right tree. Sometimes. And last week I got the wrong tree. <laughs> and Larry asked me a question about it. And uh, I tried to explain it the second time that I was still confused. And uh, so I spent half of the sermon listening to Pastor Dave trying to figure out why I was confused. <laughs> and it didn't occur to me actually until after the service that the little arrow I had pointing <clears throat> to the word, which we were studying that little word, talking about it, was the wrong word. I put the arrow in the wrong place. And then when I checked the grammar right before I taught the lesson, that's when the, the word gift, or the gift actually came up with a feminine. And it shouldn't have been. And when Larry questioned me about, is that neuter? No, it's feminine. I just checked it. But it, I had the wrong word. So my dad used to say whenever he made a big goof, no matter what month of the year it was, first mistake I've made this year. <laughs> I can't claim that because i got too many witnesses on this. <laughs> so let me clear that up before we go any further. You remember last week we were talking about documenting every gift mentioned in the New Testament, and that there are three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. One in Romans 12, 6 to 8, one in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, and one in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 to 30. And that's all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the Word of God. And then I mentioned the fact that some people add more by going to Ephesians 4.11. And in Ephesians 4.11, it talks about, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some uh, evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And I made the case that these are offices. These are not gifts, although they're routinely in gift, uh, books on spiritual gifts included. It doesn't mean that there's not some people that are very good at being uh, evangelists or, or being a good pastor or whatever, but uh, they're not gifts. And I've proceeded to explain why. It all comes about because people go back to verse 7 in Ephesians, where we read, but to each of us grace was given. Now here's the first point of confusion because the word gift is often the word, the same word grace in, uh, in the New Testament. Um, so it's actually form of the same word here as many other places where the gifts are, are uh, mentioned. And that's, that's feminine. And it was given according to the measure of Christ's gift that's Christ's singular gift, and that's feminine, and that's the one I pointed to by mistake. I had the error going over here instead of over here. When you get to the last sentence, it says, therefore he says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's a noun which is neuter in gender, which makes perfect sense. And uh, so I got all, I got you all confused, but it's because I got myself confused first. This is really simple, and we don't get into. I don't need to get into all that, other than to understand that's a direct object, using the English terminology, the accusative case of the Greek. And each one of these offices mentioned are also direct objects, also an accusative case. So he gave gifts. That is the object of the verb. What was given? Here we have. The same thing, direct object. The apostles, the evangelists, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, direct objects. They were what was given. They're not gifts that were given, but what was given. So, they were given to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and edifying the body of Christ. So, yes, gifts were given back in verse 7, but when you get to verse 11, he's not talking about spiritual gifts, he's talking about gifts God gave to the church in the form of men serving in this office. Obviously they were gifted, but there is no gift uh, of apostle at all, uh, no gift of prophets that continues, and so on. So you have problems if you go that route. So that's a very simple explanation. Just remember, gifts were given in verse 7, Men were given in verse 11. Now, the other thing that's a little confusing is the translation, they gave some, he gave some. Those are all simply definite articles. The word me in English. He gave the apostles. He gave the evangelists. He gave the pastors. See how apparent that is that they are direct objects of the verb. So, that, that translation confuses the mind. I don't know why they did it that way, but they did. So, hopefully that cleared that up. And uh, there's nothing worse than teaching a lesson and going home and, and realizing <laughs> and make that clear. Here, here it is uh, without the sums in there. You can see it. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. Now notice this, too. There is a direct, op or excuse me, a, a, an article here, a definite article. There's a definite article here for prophets. There's a definite article here for evangelists. There's only one definite article for pastors and teachers, which tells you there's four offices and not five. This is just the office of pastor or shepherd, and this is the accompanying gift that goes along with it. All right, don't want to spend too much more time. Is that hopefully clear this week, Larry? <laughs> Sorry. I told him he was very perceptive. Uh, he was ahead of me. For the rest of you that were scratching your head, I apologize. All right, let's move on to this week. We're actually going to talk about some of the gifts. The gifts of knowledge and wisdom. And this is on your uh, sheet that I passed out this morning. And someone asked me for one of the slides last week. It's actually, I put it in this week's outline. I can't remember, it might have been you. So you can see it there. We'll come back to that. Gifts of knowledge and wisdom, temporary gifts. Let's talk about their limitation. Why are we limiting them? Why are we saying they were temporary? We talked about that previously. We'll uh, whiz through it here. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 
The gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are identified as temporary gifts. Because each one, each one of those specifically are said to pass away, be done away, and uh, so on. Then if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, 7-10, you have six other gifts that are grouped with prophecy, tongues, and knowledge into three classes. So remember, when Paul wrote, he wrote 1 Corinthians 12 first. Interestingly, the 1 Corinthians 12, 7-10 is the only list of those three that contains all temporary gifts. And so, that being said, you need to remember that knowledge and wisdom are grouped in the first class. Now let's look at this quickly. We saw it before, but uh, this is 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. We'll talk about tongues later on. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So we have, we'll come to prophecies next week. We have knowledge here. But these are representative. They picked out, he picks out one of each class. This is another class, this is another class. And the first class, he mentions last year, includes knowledge. So he picks out one from each of those three classes in verse. Corinthians 13, 8, but he's already specified those classes. So you read 12, you read it in second, and you read chapter 12 first anyway, so it's easy for him to do that. If you work back, you might wonder more about it. Now going back to 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, you'll note that the first two, those that form class 1, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Now I have this in your notes. How do we know there are three classes? Discussed that last week as well. You'll notice he says, here's the first one, the word of wisdom, and here's another one, the word of knowledge. They go together because it is a specific Greek adjective, which means another of the same kind, or of like kind. Then when he goes to the second class, he uses a different Greek adjective, which means another of a different kind. So he's <coughs> heading up now another list. And each time he mentions the gifts in this class, healing, miracles, prophecy, spirits, he connects them with the adjective again like this one, which means another of the same kind. So we have a second class. Then finally he gets to the last two, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, and again he says another of a different kind. So he's got one, one, or excuse me, one, two, and three. Three classes. So we're beginning with the first class here in our discussion of temporary gifts. Remember, all in this list are temporary. We're going to cover the temporary gifts first before we get to the permanent ones. You might want to make a note. These are adjectives. All trans they're all translated exactly the same in the English. They're all translated just another. They're not translated another of the same kind, another of a different kind. I don't know why, I, I, I do know why the, it's just unfortunate because translations translate word for word, like the New King James, the New American Standard, and most, you know, they're going to give you the meaning of the word. It's another, it's another, that's the meaning. Uh, they don't give you, sometimes the, they can't include a whole explanation of the nuance of the word. Any questions about this? Okay, this is all review, basically. So now we move on to our lesson today. 
Actually, we've already moved on to our lesson today because that was the limitation here. Now let's move to the second. Now remember, knowledge and wisdom group with the first class. So they go together. So number two, the substance of the gift. What exactly does it mean when it says, to what is given the gift or the word of knowledge and to what is given the word of wisdom? And that, that's a difficulty in the translation because there's no definite article there. It just says, to what is given word of wisdom. It's an indefinite article, so it's not translated that way. They probably should have inserted the little word A, our indefinite article in English. So to what is given a gift, a particular gift, word of wisdom, another, uh, the word of knowledge. But it's not just a specific one, it's a lot of people receiving these, these gifts. What are they? Remember, they're both called the word of, the word of. It's talking about something that is a direct communication from God. <clears throat> Unfortunately, a lot of books on the topic of spiritual gifts will try to separate gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. It's, it's a contrived breakdown of the gifts. This is not a speaking gift. I'm not going to argue the fact that those who had knowledge and wisdom probably spoke that and communicated, but that's not what's being said here. The communication is coming from God to men. So, let's talk about the word logos. Word in the English, logos in the Greek. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. The Greek word logos, which means, it is usually translated word in the English, Actually, if you go back and look at Greek literature, and you look at any Greek lexicon, they'll tell you that the word logos actually means a collection of things brought together in its original meaning. Or it can mean, and further describing it as things put together in thought or gathered in the mind. Well, we think as we talk, right? I hope so, because I talk to myself a lot when I'm trying to think. We use words, concepts. So words, statements, or the counsel or the communications of God is what he's meaning here when he says a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. So the, the word, word, logos, is referring to the apprehension of truth. God gives knowledge. God gives Wisdom to men. Can I ask a question? Sure. In the you sometimes, particularly in the Old Testament, you see this is the word of the Lord. What is that? How should we interpret that in that context? This is the word of the Lord. If I were to say to you, uh, there's three guys at that table wearing a blue shirt, and sometimes in small talk, people will. See, realize they all got the same color shirt, and they'll say, well, you know, Lee didn't get the memo. <laughs> He's wearing a green shirt. Or you might say, Lee didn't get the word. The communication okay. uh, of, of something, so, a message. So, so the word of God means the message of God. The message of God or the, the communication God. from God. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, it, it doesn't mean that God spoke in audible terms necessarily, although he, in certain occasions the Bible did that. Uh, but it's his message. Wouldn't wouldn't know that the apostles wrote the scripture, the writers of scripture. Uh, some people think God gave them word for word and they dictated it, but that's not necessarily required. The Spirit gave them the words. It wasn't necessarily uh, that they heard it, but it was specific. Not every word they wrote down was inspired. I was like, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8, where we, this is the verse we're dealing with today. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. So, the word here, the word, word, <laughs> means some sort, some uh, variation of divine communication. God gave them some truth. God gave them some direction. God gave them some wisdom of some sort. That's the first concept we have to get straightened out in their minds. Now, that content, what was communicated, in some cases was knowledge, in some cases it was wisdom. So what's the distinction? First we just need to get in our head, wisdom was what was communicated. Knowledge is what was communicated. That's why we refer to these as the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge. If you say word of wisdom, word of knowledge, that, that's okay too. But I'll just shorten it down because it's, it's, it's this. Wisdom and knowledge is what's communicated. <coughs> so, we're going to try to distinguish here. And I'm just going to give you the, the terminology here, and I think you'll see it when we get into the scriptural uh, data. The gift of knowledge is information God gives. Knowledge. Understanding. It might be an understanding of what you're supposed to do. Understanding of something that you need to know to base your actions on. It comes specifically and directly from God. Wisdom is more general. The ability to the ability to understand different scenarios and factors and put them together and understand what's the wisdom for that situation. But it's more general. It's specific information. It's informational. Wisdom is more applicational. Just keep that in mind. When we get to the actual verses we're going to look at, I think it will probably be clear for all of us. So the gift of knowledge, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is pretty much the only place you can go to for historical confirmation of what these gifts were. Especially the temporary gifts. So this is a lot of scripture for me to try to put on the screen, so I trust you have your, your Bibles handy, and uh, you can follow along. So let's go to Acts chapter 5. 
story of Ananias and Sapphira. The two believers in the early church there in Jerusalem <coughs> who sold a piece of land, property, whatever it was, was included with it, and came and brought the money to the apostles. Now earlier in chapter 4, <coughs> Barnabas did this very thing. He sold a valuable piece of property and came and brought all the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was a voluntary, <coughs> self-sacrificial offering that was needed, obviously, in that early church. Because remember, they had bunches of uh, widows that were not being cared for by anybody now that they were uh, believers. The temple and Judaism had a method for that. So... There were those who had means that were giving sacrificially to help. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, let's look at it starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They kept back some of the price for himself. He and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, so far, there's nothing wrong with that. No problem whatsoever. He was under no obligation to give anything. He wasn't told to, he wasn't, he wasn't obeying scripture. He's just a, a, his motivation, though, kind of shows through here. It would seem. Other people had done this, and he kind of wanted the status, the notoriety, it seems. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? If he would have just communicated, I'm giving part of what, or part of this, it wouldn't have been a problem. But he evidently acted and probably stated that he was giving it all. Now, Peter could possibly have ascertained that information by just normal means, perhaps. But it seems very unlikely because they just sold the land and they wanted everybody to think they were giving it all, so they probably wouldn't have told anybody. So they come and they bring it, and they claim they're giving the full price, and Peter says, wait a minute, that's not what you did. Where did Peter get that knowledge? We're not told in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of history. It tells us what happened. We are looking, when we look at 1 Corinthians or Romans, we talk about spiritual gifts, we're looking at pure theology communicated by Paul in the letters. Now we're going back to Acts and looking for historical examples. So you don't get the explanation necessarily. So I can't say here and say you unequivocally, Peter had the gift of knowledge because it's not stated in Acts. So I'm, I'm making suggestions of what I believe when I see it and compare it to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians but this was probably evidence of the gift. That's the best anybody can do. Peter continues in verse 4 and says, While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. This was a voluntary gift. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Do ever, you could have kept it, you could have given part of it, you know, whatever you wanted. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
said, that's pretty harsh. But Peter didn't strike him dead. Peter just pronounced the problem. God said, Ananias, your life's over. If God would have struck those of us who at some point in our life lied about something dead, then we would have an empty room. <laughs> Even we all have, we pretty much excuse it to say, well, I won't lie right to your face, you know, I won't state something wrong, but we can figure a dozen ways to obfuscate around and say what, you know, we don't want to say, you know what I'm talking about. You have to understand, this is a momentous occasion in the first church. And the key to understanding that is what Luke writes by the inspiration of the Spirit when he says, and great fear came up over all who heard of it. God made an example of Ananias for the benefit of what could have degenerated into something that shouldn't have been going on in that early church. Now here's the thing. Sapphira wasn't there. She comes back a little while later and uh, brought down verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came yet not knowing what had happened and Peter responded to her. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said yes. <coughs> so she lied. And Peter said unto her, why have you why is it you have agreed together with the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband at the door, he will carry you out as well. Now, Peter didn't pronounce that Ananias was going to die, but he pronounces that Pyrrhus. You say, well, that's a logical conclusion. Could be also, perhaps, uh, God gave him the knowledge of what God was going to do. Peter didn't do it in either regards. So, the gift seems to be exemplified here by the fact that Peter, and there's going to be other cases, understood new things that God communicated to him. <coughs> All of these four are a very momentous, critical point in the early church. This was very early on. Now let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse 29. This is in regard to Philip. Philip was one of the seven chosen in Acts 6, commonly called deacons, although they don't use the word in Acts 6. But I think they were servants, obviously, so that's legitimate because the word deacon means servant. He went to Samaria and preached the gospel. He was, I guess you'd say, the first missionary. Went out from Jerusalem and went to Samaria, preached the gospel, had a great revival there. Many people were saved. But then God called him away from Samaria, right in the midst of that great revival, to speak to one man. So he's traveling. Verse 25. Uh, so they had Solomon testify, spoke of the word of the Lord. They started back to Jerusalem and was preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, and he was in charge of all of her treasure 
And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So an Ethiopian war eunuch, taken as a slave perhaps, who knows, serving in the court of the Queen of Ethiopia, but he's Jewish as a proselyte, or he was born Jewish, uh, we're not really told. I'm guessing he was a proselyte. He'd come to believe in the God of Israel. Probably wasn't Jewish. Verse 29, 28 says, And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, there it is, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. I suggest to you, Philip would not have went up and joined that chariot otherwise. You realize this is a high court official of a neighboring queen, and he's driving down the road in a, I don't know, Cadillac? <laughs> I mean, people in, in Judea didn't have chariots. Nobody had chariots unless you were pretty high up, pretty well off. He probably had that chariot probably marked or identified uh, official government business or property somehow. And uh, Philip wouldn't have just done this out of compassion. He would have been hesitant to approach or, but the Spirit of God says, go up and join yourself in this chariot. Now, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he stood in the road and went like this. I don't know if he went like this. I don't know how he did it. But he got the chariot stopped. And we all know the story. He explained to what the Ethiopian eunuch had been reading from Isaiah and uh, he placed it in the eunuch. The eunuch placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and then he was Philip baptized him, and, and so on. But the key is verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go and join up with Spirit spoke to him. Word of knowledge was word that gave him direction. Word that gave him, uh, or communicated to him what God's will was for that moment. Philip went to Samaria. Now Philip is affecting Ethiopia. This is a key juncture in the spread of the church. Now let's move to Acts chapter 10. Any questions so far? Doesn't mean the Spirit spoke audibly. The Spirit could have. Doesn't mean that necessarily. But it was a communication from God. Now let's go to Acts chapter 10, verse 17. Back to Peter. Peter is uh, in Joppa, that's the right place. Maybe he's in Caesarea, I think it is. Peter's in Caesarea, and uh, he's resting on the roof, trying to cool off. They didn't have air conditioning, so that's where you went to cool the day or to get a breeze. And uh, it may have been uh, late in the afternoon, I'm not sure. Peter has this vision of all the full-fourted animals being let down in the sheep. And God says, rise and kill and eat. And Peter refuses to do so because some of them are not clean animals. And Peter doesn't want to violate his Jewish uh, concepts of the law. He doesn't realize the law is ended, the death of Christ. He, he's still trying to be a good Jew as well as being a believer. And God has to use this means to say, you know, what God has declared clean, don't you declare unclean. And so Peter gets the message from God by way of a vision, just like Philip got the first message by way of an angel. The angel and the vision is not the gift, I don't think. But look what happens. But Peter said, by, this is after the vision, 
after the boy says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, the voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer considered unholy. God is speaking to him. He gives him the vision to make the point that God is communicating to him, speaking to him, communicating his direction, his will from the moment. And then he goes in the direction of the Lord to the, uh, the house of Cornelius, the God-fearer, as he's called. He, he, was, he was Italian. He was a centurion. He'd become a believer in the God of Israel, but he didn't know about Jesus. And uh, here's another example. God delivering knowledge. Again, at a very momentous point. Now, the Gospels go to the horrible Romans of all people, right? Peter wouldn't have been Peter wouldn't have been inclined of his own to go to a Roman centurion and start preaching to him. But God sends him to the house, and he preaches. And the house of and Cornelius believes, and the house of Cornelius believes, and. And so on. And something else interesting happened there in relation to tongues, and we'll come back to that later. Now let's go to chapter 13, verse 2. You know, Jay, I think it's interesting there that Peter knew immediately it was God speaking. I'm sorry, say that again? Peter knew immediately it was God speaking. Yeah. The voice was God. Well, remember when he, when he complained about the voice the first time and said... Uh, has the vision and then verse 13 a voice came to him get up Peter kill me but Peter said by no means Lord he knew immediately God was speaking yes so chapter 13 interestingly another momentous point in church history Barnabas and Saul are serving in Antioch, Antioch in Syria, uh, north of Jerusalem. Uh, not, not in Judea, not in uh, even Galilee, Gentile territory. I remember the persecution of Saul is what led to a lot of these believers scattering out, being dispersed all over. A church came in, a group of people formed a church in Antioch, and then God sends the converted Paul and Barnabas well, Barnabas went first. Remember, Barnabas had to go and find Paul and bring him. And, and so there are five, what I would call, five uh, elders of the church of Antioch mentioned here as we begin. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Some of them had the gift of prophecy. We haven't got to that yet. And some were teachers. And so at least we, in fact, all of them would have been teachers. I think it's mentioned here. And then they're named Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And last of all, last but not least, they say Saul. He's still called Saul at this point. He's not, he doesn't begin to use the name or be called Paul until he actually leaves on that first missionary journey. It could be that 
He was the last addition to this five. They needed help. Barnabas went and got him. Come in and be a teacher. He, I mean, he, he'd been three years with God in the wilderness and learning, you know, I mean, what else do you want, okay? So, but he's still the new man on the, on the block, so to speak. So, I think it's fair to describe these as the five elders, or at least five of the elders in the church at Antioch. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they prayed, laid hands on them, sent them out, and Paul and Barnabas went out on that first missionary journey. Another momentous occasion early on because now the gospel spreads throughout the Roman Empire. The Holy Spirit said. Now, all these are important occasions which stands out in my mind. It doesn't mean that there weren't other less important occasions that this happened, but these are just the occasions where it happened that, as Luke unfolds the inspired story that we see it. God delivering direction, communications of knowledge, wisdom, or the counsel of God, specific. Jay, I'm sorry. You didn't mean Did to you break your... What, in relation to that, how would you describe Peter's uh, soliloquy in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit had come to, to the apostles on... Uh, day of Pentecost, and Peter immediately does this beautiful soliloquy to the Jewish people that are there, the audience. Would that be considered uh, a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit, or would that be something different? I think that would probably be evidence of Peter's teaching, you know, but not necessarily that he actually received Specific knowledge. He didn't say that God told him what to say or anything. Uh, he, he preached the truth and uh, that it's put in the scripture as truth. But remember, even if Peter wasn't perfect in what he said, the book of Acts tells us what was said. So anytime you see somebody say something in a historical book like that, it's recording what was said or done. So it's not like his sermon was inspired. The recording of his sermon was inspired. So I would say, you know, the, the Spirit of God came before that, in the upper room. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit poured out on the church. And we've already studied how spiritual gifts happen when a person becomes a believer. So whatever gifts Peter had, he had already. I would think this is more the gift of teaching there. But remember, the apostles also spoke and they heard, everyone heard in their own language. So there was a gift of tongues not right at that place, I don't think, but that was also a gift they had immediately was used. That's the way I would look at that. But again, we're looking at we're looking at the historical book. So we're looking for examples. We don't have definitive truth as well in every case. Yes. So John, you're just delineating the gift of knowledge as a specific point, not just understanding the scripture. I, I believe that Holy Spirit provides and did provide already for them the illumination. Go you know, back to what Jesus said in the upper room, 
right? You remember all things I've said and so forth. Um, so they, they, everybody, even down to this day, has that from the Holy Spirit to be able to understand truth. But the gift of knowledge, the way I look at it, would be a specific point where they receive some specific word, not a generalized thing. Okay. Good question. <clears throat> Are we moving too fast? No. It's hard for me to say. I've been spending years doing, you know, looking at this, and the last three years in specific terms looking at it. So, but yeah, we have limited time. So slow me down. Ask questions like this. Yeah. Let's move on to the word of wisdom. And again, we're going to see if we can find this in the Book of Acts. So go to chapter twenty. Remember, the word of wisdom is more. The ability to understand circumstances and situations and do the right thing or say the right thing. It's not specific knowledge. It's applicational ability. Chapter 20 at verse 22. Paul has completed his third missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It is in Jerusalem where he'll be arrested, taken to Caesarea, held for many months, put on trial by Festus and Agrippa, eventually sent to, to Rome by way of ship. We'll get to that in a minute, too. Um, but in, on the way there, chapter 20, verse 22, always <coughs> speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops near to Ephesus, calls the elders from Ephesus come and give them that final address. As part of the address, he says this, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Maybe that's, I haven't even thought about that one. That could be another word of knowledge there. And now bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So what I want you to see is, he was going to Jerusalem because God sent him there. Not just because he wanted to go. And when he gets there, he's going to get arrested. And he, and all those other things are going to happen. And then look at verse 23. Let's read verse 22 again. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my, my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. See, he knew something bad was going to happen. He's going because God sent him there. Now let's go to chapter 21, verse 4. On the way, he stops. The <clears throat> ships would sail along the coastline and stop at various ports, trans, you know, transferring you know, freight people. It comes to uh, verse 3. When they came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, they kept sailing uh, to Syria and landed at Tyre. That's north up the coast from Caesarea and the Holy Land. Kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship had to unload cargo. After looking up the disciples, this is Paul, uh, Luke says, after looking up the disciples, we, meaning him and Paul, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
It sounds like a contradiction. Paul said, I'm bound in the Spirit to go, even though I know chains and everything await me. And these believers in Tyre keep telling him, don't go. Bad things are going to happen. It's not a contradiction. Paul already had the knowledge. Paul knew he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. That was clear. These people are exercising, probably, the word of wisdom. The communication of God. Not a specific message, not a specific direction, decision, but ability in certain um, challenging situations and circumstances to understand what's the wise thing to do. And they're just saying, you know, it's not wise to go because you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have a good time there. <laughs> but Paul knows he's supposed to go. I don't know, you might think I'm stretching here a little bit. And it didn't, we, again, we can't say for sure, but this appears to me to be the difference between Paul's sure word and the wise thing in the circumstances as far as anybody would know, not knowing what Paul had been told. I don't want to, I, I just, I'm thinking about Acts 16. And Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia, beginning at verse 6. And Paul and his companions travel throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit for preaching the word in the province of Asia. Would that be a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom? Being kept? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> told, and you know, then it goes on and talks about Jesus appearing or, or during the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia coming in begging, uh, come over to Macedonia, and after Paul had seen the vision, uh, he immediately left and you know he redirected his let's go let's go back to being kept from going to what was it? Uh, from going from yeah, kept by the Holy Spirit from going to uh, the province of Asia. It sounds like that might have been a word of knowledge. Don't go there. Obviously, it could just be a way of saying God put a roadblock. You know, they weren't able to go there. We can't really say for sure. And then we come to the vision. And whether or, God, whether or not these visions were a word of knowledge or not, possibly. Uh, remember, the angel spoke to Philip, and uh, Peter had the vision on the rooftop. So the knowledge may have came by that route. That would be kind of a possibility, not uh, because technically the angel delivered a message, technically God delivered a message to the vision, so I'm not calling them to get the knowledge, but I, knowledge it could be. I don't know we can really tell. God had various ways that he communicated with the apostles of the Acts 27, verse 9. Now Paul on his way to Rome by way of ship. Chapter 27, verse 9. He's under arrest. He's accompanied by a Roman centurion guarding him. Let's back up a little bit here. 
Let's go to verse 7. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty we, we, we arrived at Canidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a, uh, to a place called Fair Havens. This is on the shore of Asia Minor, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous. It was getting past the time of the year when you could safely sail. That's what it's been here. Uh, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, that's a time reference, I won't get into that, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship by what was being said by Paul than what was. So Paul said, as they're preparing to, well, can, can we get there before it gets bad? And then the, the captain of the ship said, the, everybody else who has authority and has more experience than Paul, uh, sailing, they said, yep, we're going to give it a whirl. Paul said, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to lose a ship and you probably, you know, you're going to do it at the cost of a ship and lives. Now, Paul's not given a prophecy here. If he was given a prophecy, he was wrong because nobody died when they were shipwrecked on Malta. But look at what it says in verse 10. And he said to them, Men, I perceive something, something clicked in his mind. I think perhaps the gift of wisdom looking at the circumstances to render what actually happened. He just said it's going to be at the risk of lives of the ship, but it wasn't a prophecy. That's a different gift for a different time. Um, so these are just some examples that I've filtered through an Acts to try to show how these gifts may well have operated. Somewhat, this is somewhat conjecture and, uh, for you to ponder and think about. One last thing, wisdom and knowledge today. God's direction of our lives is the product of dedication. Because the question arises, well, if God spoke to them and gave them knowledge, and God gave them special uh, ability to, to render uh, wise decisions, what about us? If they're temporary gifts, what are we left with? Read Romans 12, 1 to 10. Look, God's will is not <coughs> given to us in advance. Now, we may have a hint of it. We may feel compelled to move in a certain direction. The Spirit can do that. He certainly uh, can can compel us to do things, we can feel a call or whatever. But we don't have definitive words from God. God didn't speak to me and said, thou shalt be a pastor. I had, I had that desire in my heart, and I think he put that there. But God wants us in this dispensation to live by faith. And it is our faith as we follow step by step along the way that will produce, looking back in our rearview mirror, produce what we can see to be the sovereignty of God over our lives. Now if you look at Romans 12, 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice. That's dedication of life, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You're committed, you're dedicated, 
You're serving God. You're doing what is needed to be done at hand that the Spirit might lead you to do. And you're not being conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Spirit is operative in us. He lives within us. He can direct us, compel us, can even direct our thinking. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Is he giving us direction just like he gave Peter and Paul direction? Yes. Yeah. It's just not in a plain spoken definitive word. But here's the thing to remember about God's will. It's taken me years to understand this. When I was a youngster, uh, a young preacher, I kept trying to figure out how do we know what God's will is? You study this. The way you find God's will, dedicate your life to Jesus Christ and serve wherever you can, just like it says right here, and God's will will unfold because God's a sovereign God. So he hasn't left us with no direction. We have his word. We have his work in our heart and mind. We have his sovereign control over things. Alice, let's go on to wisdom. We also have unrestricted access to God's wisdom. Right? James 1.5. If anyone likes wisdom, let him ask God. He gives to all men liberally. How much they give? All you want. Probably more than you can use. He <laughs> gives you to all liberally. And without, without saying, you dummy, you should know this. No, he doesn't reproach us. As much as we act, he'll give us wisdom. And that wisdom will come through preachers, teachers, our own personal Bible study and reading, people that we seek counsel from. There are many, many ways we will get that wisdom, but God sovereignly will bring it to us if we ask for it. So he hasn't left us with something like second-class status of the church versus what went on in the early days. It's just different. Wow. <laughs> I was thinking about doing four gifts, and I said, no, no, I better stick with two. I'm sure glad we did. <laughs> Anybody else have a good question or an observation? I mean, something might occur to you, never occurred to me. No matter. Yes. Oh, we were reading this and talking about <clears throat> Paul and the Holy Spirit telling him to go to Jerusalem and telling him what might possibly be happening. And then the, and as he, through his travels, he's been told, no. I look at this as God was testing him. Are you going to go by what man is saying? And I don't think it's going to You've got a choice to get out, or are you going to do what I said? I want you to do it. It would have been a test, I'm sure, because you kept hearing that. But it's stuck with what the Holy Spirit got to tell him. The thing about it was, the Holy Spirit told him to go, and men were telling him to not go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I believe those men were also led through the Holy Spirit, like I said, and telling him these things. But he stuck with what the Lord told him. Common sense, common wisdom. So Paul had a little bit of Anybody else? Questions? Comments?